All right, church family, good morning. So glad to be with all of you on this week. If you would, go ahead and grab a Bible, or if you have a Bible app on your phone, go ahead and open it up with me to that last verse of Galatians chapter 5. So it's Galatians 5, 26, and then we're going to be reading through uh, chapter 6, verse 10 this morning. If you are here and you are a new Christian, or maybe you're just here and you're exploring Christianity, I want to say a special thank you for being here. We're so glad you're here with us. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles that we've provided in the pew in front of you. Um, Just grab one of those Bibles and take that home with you. That is our gift to you this morning, Um, so feel free to do that. Whether you are ready or not, the Christmas season is upon us. So uh, for some of you super excited about that, some of that's a little bit stressful, Uh, Like Mike talked about earlier this morning, when you come in here next week, this room is going to look very different. It's going to be decorated, at least if you stick around and help us to do it. If not, it's going to be halfway decorated, um, whatever Mike and I can get done on our own. But it's going to be decorated, which means that we're also next Sunday starting our 2018 Advent study, which um, is going to be a lot of fun this year. Uh, This year we're doing this theme, Ancient Advent. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the coming of of Jesus through the lens of the prophet Isaiah, who lived hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. So it's going to be a really interesting take on the coming of a Savior, the coming of the Messiah, as seen through somebody that that just had a glimpse of what was to come. And so we're going to be looking at Isaiah in that study. It's going to be a lot of fun. I hope that you will all make plans, if you're here in town in the month of December, to be part of that Advent study with us. But what that all means is that we really need to wrap up our study of Galatians this morning. And so that's what we're going to try to do. Now, I, I hope this morning that as we have been reading through the book of Galatians, that you have been as encouraged and challenged as I have in the midst of this study. The book of Galatians has laid out for us over and over again one of the most important, significant truths that you could ever believe that you could ever put your hands around, that you could ever grasp, and that truth is simply this, that God's approval of you, your salvation, your right standing before God is a complete gift of His what? Grace. We've seen that evidence of grace over and over again in this book. It is all His work, unlike what any other religion or belief system will tell you. You cannot earn God's love. You cannot learn a standing of being accepted before God. It has been provided through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's all available to you. What he says, though, is we must receive it through faith, that we must turn from our sin and receive this incredible gift of salvation that God has given unto us. And so this has been all over the book of Galatians, over and over again. Last week, we talked about how when that happens, when you give your life to Christ, and what happens is the Holy Spirit comes in you and he begins to change you he begins to produce a totally different kind of fruit in your life than you can produce on your own we talked about that love peace joy patience gentleness self-control all these things the spirit begins to produce in and through your life once you give your life to jesus christ now i realize when we begin to talk about the holy spirit that makes some of you uncomfortable Uh, We don't sometimes really know what to do with the Spirit. Uh, Galatians 5 had these phrases, being filled with the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, walking with the Spirit. And some of us look at that and we think, well, what does that mean? What is this whole lifestyle of living by the Spirit? What does it look like in real life? 
I mean, does it mean that we're supposed to be out there and we're supposed to be able to do all these miracles? We're supposed to be speaking in tongues and healing people and all these, these big displays of, of the Spirit? Is that what it means? Does living by the Spirit mean that we have to quit our jobs, sit in isolation until we feel something from God, make sure and get essential oils to make sure and enhance the mood, right? What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? These are questions that have been asked for literally hundreds and hundreds of years. This this week in my study, I came across what has to be one of the most unusual people in all of church history. It's a guy named Simeon the Stylite. How many of you have heard of Simeon the Stylite? Anybody in this room? Very few of you have heard of him. Uh, and he lived around 400 A.D., and he was trying to answer this question, what does it look like to live by the Spirit? And so finally, after many years, he decided, if I'm going to live by the Spirit, I've got to move out of the city and move and live in isolation. And so what Simeon did is he went to the, the edge of the Syrian desert, and he, he built up a literal pillar that stretched 60 feet into the air. On top of that pillar was a, a base of about 3 feet in diameter with a little crossbow to keep him from falling off, and he spent the next 30 years of his life on top of that pillar. Imagine that. 30 years, people would bring him food and bring it up, and you'll see a picture of him up here. Simeon the Stylite, to him, to live by the Spirit meant that he had to flee every distraction and be alone with God in isolation. So is that our answer? Are each one of us in this room to, to leave San Francisco, move away from people and all the distractions of life so that we can truly be filled by the Spirit? Well, Paul doesn't leave that question to chance. What does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? What does a Spirit-filled life look like? He's going to give us this one significant truth, and this is what I want to hone in on this morning. I want you to think about this. Think about your own life with this one truth in mind. It is this, the greatest evidence of a Spirit-filled life is love for one another. Far from leaving the city, far from leaving our community of other people and interacting with others, the greatest evidence of a spirit-filled life is love for one another. The easiest way you can know that you are being led by the Spirit of God is to look at your life and look at your actions toward the people around you in this room. That's what we're going to read in this text. Now, if you've been reading along in our study, this shouldn't really be a surprise to you. Already we've seen this kind of evidenced in the other passages. Galatians 5, verse 13 and 14, uh, Paul said this. He said, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through what? Love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we've already seen evidence of this. He goes on, and the rest of chapter 5, he talked about living by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit. And what does he say? The, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The first facet of the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not our ability to, to spend a lot of time in isolation away from other people. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love. It starts out with love. So love for one another is the greatest evidence of Spirit-filled life. But here's the thing. The world's definition of love is very different than what Paul defines love as. Paul, when he talks about love, it's not some touchy-feely, hey, you do whatever makes you happy kind of love. Paul speaks about love in very concrete terms. He, he gives you actions that love evidences itself as. He doesn't leave it as this blurry um, uh, picture of love. For the world, a lot of their definition of love is, is, hey, just let people do whatever they want to do. 
Paul says, no, my definition is much different than that. It's specific love lived out in the midst of a Christ-centered community, and that's what we're going to see this morning. He's going to show us what love looks like, but before he does that, in verse 26, he tells us about what I would call the killer of Christian love. Before he gets into what love looks like, he says, if there, this one thing is evident in your heart, it's going to kill any chances you have at loving others as you're called to love them. And so that's what I want us to look at for chapter 5, verse 26. He says this, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Before he gives us the commands of love, he says what? Do not let us become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, to be conceited is, is what? Is to primarily be thinking about yourself. You're going about life, and you're always thinking about yourself, and you're, you're walking through life with a very false view of your own importance. That's what it means to be conceited. Uh, later in verse 3, he says this, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And so all of us have this struggle. We walk in life, and it's all about us. We're seeing everything through the lens of ourselves and how it affects us, how each of the people around us impact us. And he says this evidences itself in two ways in our relationships. If you're a conceited person, a person that has a false view of yourself that, that leads into everything, it's going to come out in one of two ways. The first, he says, is through provoking one another. Now that word provoke is a really interesting word. You don't see it very often in the Bible, and here's what it means. It means to challenge somebody to a contest. Now I don't think many of us go around just challenging each other to a contest, but here's what it implies. It implies that we are so sure of our superiority that we want others to to know that we are superior, to know that we're more than. It would be like Mike coming to me after the service and challenging me in front of all the congregation to a cook-off. Mike is a fantastic cook. If you've never been to his house, he's an incredible cook. He knows that my greatest feat as a cook is Kraft macaroni and cheese. So he knows that. If he were to come up and challenge me to a cook-off, it would be why? To show his superiority. Well, what this is saying is that when we are conceited, a lot of times we get an inflated view of ourselves. We see ourselves as superior, and the result is we want other people to know it as well. So that's the first one, provoking one another. But then he says it also comes out in the opposite direction. What does he say? Through envying one another. So that word envy means that we go around and we, we look at others and we see what they have. I would imagine some of you, if you got on social media, you, you saw all these displays of great things on Thanksgiving, great groups gathering, all these different things, and there's a piece of us that says what? Well, I deserve what they have. And we see that they have the better personality, or they have the better looks, or they have the better job, or they have the better relationship status. We see these things, and we envy them. We say, well, that's not fair. I should have that. Friends, if you look at these two things, what is the connection between envying and provoking one another? It's this, that among your relationships, there's a spirit of competition. Competition. And the sad thing is this, this plagues the church. Paul is talking to brothers and sisters. He's talking to the church, and he says, let us not become conceited. We, we cannot come into the church with this mentality where we're competitors, where I'm looking around and I'm always comparing myself. How do I stack up against this person? How do I stack up against that person? What do they have that I don't have? What do I have that they don't have? He says if this spirit of competition is in your heart, it's going to come out. You're going to envy. You're going to provoke. You're going to see yourself as superior and inferior, more than or less than, and it's going to ruin your Christian relationships. 
Paul says we as God's people are called to much more than competition. We are co-laborers. We are co-partners for the sake of the gospel. So therefore, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Church, I would ask you this morning to examine your heart. When you come into this room, as you look at others on social media, if you, as you interact with one another, do you care more about your status? Or do you love and serve the people in this room? Do you see them as competitors? Or do you see them as co-laborers? Paul says this is the killer of Christian love. When we're always comparing ourselves to one another instead of loving and serving one another. At that point, though, he moves on. He talks about these specific commands of Christian love. If that's the killer of Christian love, the opposite is then to act in love. And that's what he tells us in this next passage. Now, I realize even when I say the word command, that can come off as harsh. Some of you hear, oh, a command of Christian love, and you think, well, that's tough. But do you realize that's the language that Jesus uses? John chapter 15, he says, This is the commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's a commandment. It's it's an obligation. It's not an option for the Christian. But here's what I want you to understand. Jesus never commands us to do anything on our own. Every command that Christ calls us to is a call to trust him to do something in and through us that we cannot do on our own. Every command that we're going to read in this text requires the Holy Spirit to be in us and to be working in us for us to be walking by the Spirit to produce this kind of love. And so with that in mind, let's look at the first one, verse 1. He says, brothers, again, he's talking to Christians. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So how do we love one another? Number one, he says this, your command, restore one another from sin. We as brothers and sisters in Christ are to restore one another from sin. Now this is important because what Paul is saying is that even the most spiritually mature Christians, there are going to be times where they are trapped by sin. They're caught up in sin. That word is is when when they're in the grasp of sin. It's gonna happen to each one of us. We talked about this last week. If you are a Christian, there is a constant battle going on in your heart between who? The Spirit, who is trying to lead you toward Christ-likeness, and what? The flesh. That part of each one of us that says, no, God, I want to do what I want to do. I'm the king of my own life. This battle is constantly being waged with the result that we give in to temptation. We fall into sin. We get into the grasp of sin. So when that happens, when that happens to one of your brothers and sisters in Christ that sit around you this room, what are we to do? He says, restore them with a spirit of gentleness. I love that word restore. I want you to think about this. The word restore means this, to return to its former condition. And the, the, when this was written, it was used as a medical term. Uh, if you can picture in the world of medicine uh, a bone that's out of place and what do you have to do in order to let it heal? You've got to get, bring it back into place. You've got to restore it back so that it can heal. Well, that's the picture here. This is one of those areas where Paul's definition of love is, is very different than our own, is it not? Because again, what does the culture say to us about loving one another? If we are going to love someone, it means we have to encourage them to do whatever makes them, whatever they think is going to make them most happy, right? Our love is to be unconditional acceptance of everything that everyone says and does. That's what love is. That's not what Paul says. See, Paul knows that, that sin 
not following God's commands or, or not living up to God's commands, that that leads to what? Brokenness. It leads to dysfunction in life. It leads to you being out of connection with Christ, out of fellowship with Christ. If, if we never turn from our sin, it means eternal separation from God. So Paul says the most unloving thing you could do is just say, hey, do whatever makes you happy. But instead, he says it is most loving to restore them, to bring them back into right fellowship with Christ. You say, well, how do we do this? Well, Jesus makes that very clear in Matthew chapter 18. We're not going to dive into the process that much. We don't have time this morning, but I do want to read it this morning. Jesus says these words in Matthew 18. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So again, it starts out with just a one-on-one private conversation. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and otherwise the church leaders. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So that's the process that Jesus gives us. He says, hey, it starts with you one-on-one going and, and trying to restore them trying to help them see their sin so that they can be reconnected into fellowship with Christ. But Paul's point is not so much the process here, but it's the spirit behind the process. Because what does he say? Do so with a spirit of gentleness. Now here's the thing. When it comes to restoring others, you cannot just go and just jump into that lightheartedly. If you've ever tried to do that, you know that can be an absolute disaster. But when you see a brother and sister in sin, what this means is when it talks about the spirit of gentleness, that means you have to have the spirit all over you, right? It means that you've spent significant time in prayer, asking for your own heart to be clean before God, taking the log out of your own eye. It means that you need to be praying for the other person, that God would be working in their life. But as you're doing that, as the spirit is filling you, he says, then go. And the natural byproduct is you're going to do it with gentleness. If the spirit's in you, one of the fruit is what? Part of the fruit is gentleness. He says, restore them with gentleness. Each person in this room, this is your call. This is not just for pastors. He says, you who are spiritual, restore others. Some of you say, well, I'm not real spiritual. Well, if the Holy Spirit's in you, then what? You're spiritual. You're under that category. But as you walk by the Spirit, he says, as you see others in sin, it is most loving to restore them in their walk with Christ. That's the first command. But then let's look at verse 2. He says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So the second command, bear one another's burdens. This one's very important. Just as Paul assumes that Christians at times will fall into sin, he is also assuming here that Christians can expect to face very significant burdens in their life. Sometimes these burdens are sins, right? Sometimes they're the, the result of sin. But oftentimes, especially when I think of this room, each of you in this room, I would imagine that there are many times you have come into this room and you are bearing a significant burden, one that seems way too heavy to bear it on your own. Even this morning, as I prayed for you this week, I I thought about the specific burdens that I know of, the burden of worry that I know many of you are dealing with, the burden of doubts, uh, the burden of struggles with your spouse, the burden of, of struggles with a child, the burdens of, of struggles with a parent, the struggle of depression, uh, the struggle of work, some situations, a lot of decisions that you're having to make that, that, that are heavy, they weigh on you. These are burdens. And friends, here's the thing. 
What Christ says in this, the word of God is this, you are not meant to bear those burdens alone. You're not. You're not meant to bear them alone. You're not to do this alone. The Christian life is to be lived among a community of faith. It is oftentimes overwhelming for me to think of the burdens in this room, but I hope you don't miss that either. Every Sunday that you come into this room, the men and women to your right and to your left are carrying significant burdens. The question is this, are you helping bear those burdens? To bear one another's burdens is, again, it's a command, it's not an option. Martin Luther, the great reformer and pastor, said this. He said, a Christian needs broad shoulders and husky bones in order to carry the burdens of his brothers and sisters. I'm not exactly sure what husky bones look like. I would never tell you that you have husky bones. But that is what we're called to, right? We're to be broad-shouldered, to be husky bones, to bear one another's burdens. You say, but Ryan, aren't we supposed to bring our burdens to God? Absolutely. Only God can bear your burdens at the end of the day. But the Scriptures over and over again show us what? That He oftentimes helps bear those burdens through who? Through His hands and His feet, the church. He bears them through individuals, ordinary individuals like you and you and you and you. That's how he does it. He works through his family that he has put on this earth for you. In this congregation, he has provided you a family that can listen to your struggles. In this congregation, he has provided you a family that can pray for you on the spot when you're facing difficulty. In this congregation, he has provided for you a family that will sit with you in that hospital room. Provided you a family that will, will help make ends meet when th- times are tight. He's provided a family that will provide that meal when that new baby arrives. He provides that family that will have you over for dinner when you're feeling the loneliness and the isolation that exists in this city. He's provided you a family. We are called to be this kind of family, which means this. You are called to be this kind of family member. We as a church will never be this family until you as an individual are that kind of family member. Each one of us playing our own part in bearing one another's burdens. But here's the flip side. Living up to this command also requires that each one of us be honest about the burdens we're carrying. You may think that everybody in this room has supernatural ability to just look into your life and know what's going on. Let me just tell you, they don't. The people to your right and to your left, they don't just know the burden you're bearing this morning. And so here's what I'm going to ask you. If you are here and you are bearing a burden this morning, I'm going to ask you that you not let pride keep you from sharing that burden with somebody else in this room. Pride will always try to seep in. It will always try to say, when I come to worship in this room, I'm going to put on a front, like everything's okay, and I'm just going to go about the service. Pride's going to say, I can handle this on my own. I don't really need anybody in this room to help bear my burden." That may sound confident, that may sound strong, but friend, here's this, it is not Christian. That attitude, that is pride, that's the flesh, that is not Christian. Christianity says this, we need each other. We need one another to bear one another's burdens. The church is not a club, it's not a religious organization, it's a community of faith that says we are here for one another, we're here to love and serve one another, to bear one another's burdens. It's our second command. But then we get to a third one. And this one's a little bit more broad. I think there's a point in that. It's this, do good to one another. So not only do we restore those in sin and and bear one another's burdens, but we also are to constantly seek out opportunities to do good to one another. I think we like to put limits on our doing good, but Paul doesn't allow that here. He just says, do good. 
He shows us what that looks like in a couple different scenarios. The first is between the pastor and the congregation, verse 6. He says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, this is just another picture, and he's saying to the congregation, do good to those who lead you and, and teach you God's word, to those who give spiritual oversight over you. Do good, take care of their needs. Um, this is one of those instructions that you'll see in other places where a congregation has a, has a commitment, a responsibility to care for those who lead them spiritually. I'm not going to stay here long because, let's just be honest, it can be, seem a bit self-serving to say, hey, share your good things with me. I appreciate that. But I do want to say this. You do a fantastic job of this. Like Rachel and I, as we were talking this week of the things we're thankful for, we are so unbelievably grateful for the love that this church has showed us from the moment we came as pastor eight, nine years ago. We're so unbelievably grateful. And as we've added staff team, every single time the church has sought to take care of the needs of our staff team members. So I just want to say thank you. You're doing a fantastic job of that. But here's what I'm going to ask you individually, personally. I want to challenge you with something. There's always room to grow in this area of generosity. Not, not just for our staff team, not just for the pastors, but he talks about doing good for everyone. Look at verse 10. He says, So then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So this doing good, this, this sharing of our resources, this, this sharing of our time and our energy, it, it requires generosity, and it requires sacrifice. Doing good always comes at a cost to us. So here's the question, are you doing good? You say, well, that text says, as we have opportunity. I don't have a lot of opportunities. Well, let me explain to you what that, that phrase is talking about. It doesn't mean as you have opportunity as in, hey, when times are really good financially, then do these things, or when you have enough time, do these things as you have opportunity. No. What he means by is as you have opportunity, he's saying as you're still alive. He's saying Christ is going to return. This whole book has said that as Christ is going to return, you're going to meet him face to face. He's saying as you have this opportunity, this life that God's given you, he says what? Do good to everyone especially those in the household of faith. I think as we go into December and as we go into the new year, this next month is a, a really important time because it's a great time for you to evaluate. Are you actually doing good to those around you? Are you sacrificing your time to do good for others? Are you sacrificing your financial resources to go, do good to others? Are you being hospitable? Are you being open-handed with everything that God's made you a steward of in your life? Or are you close-fisted? I've said it a number of times, and I will always say it. The moment you become close-fisted to God, you've blocked off the blessings that God wants to bring and work through you. The more open-handed you are, the more God can give so that he can bless you with others. Not just with resources, but with your time and your energy. God desires to work through you to do good to others. How big of a priority is that in your life? Again, this is a command. Do good to one another. The last command is this, and it fits with all of them. Keep going. Keep going. Keep restoring the brother or sister in sin. Keep bearing one another's. Keep doing good. Verse 9. It says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. In other words, what Paul is saying is we are not just to live this out for a couple days so that we can feel better about ourselves. This kind of love requires a long-term commitment to others. If you've ever tried to love in this way, you know this work can be exhausting. 
to restore one another is hard work. To bear one another's burdens is hard work. To do good is hard work. It's exhausting. But what does he say? In due season, you will reap. You're going to reap the blessing of it. Sometimes we get to reap the blessings in this life where we see God work in and through us. But other times, friends, we're going to reap in the presence of Christ. Where we receive the most unbelievable award, being with him for eternity. So with that in mind, I love how Paul ends. He ends by reminding us just one more time. Think about these things. Bear with one another. Uh, Bear one another's burdens. Restore one another. Do good to one another. Keep doing these things. But then he says this in verse 7 and 8. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whoever, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I realize since most all of you live in San Francisco, or at least in the Bay Area, I doubt many of you, your primary occupation is that of a farmer. But if you look at this text, this is a farming principle. I think we can all understand. What does he say? You will reap what you sow. I think we all get that. If you, if you sow a lemon tree, you're not going to reap an apple tree. That, that's not what's going to happen. If you sow just a few seeds, you're not going to have this massive garden that, that comes. No, he says, whatever you sow, you are going to reap. Do not be deceived. I think that's important because I think some of us in this room are living a very deceived existence when it comes to this sowing and reaping. I think there are many of us in this room, and I fall into this category oftentimes, where we sow and sow and sow into the flesh. We sow into doing what we think we need to do. We sow into all these things with very little time for the Spirit. Very little time in His Word. Very little time in prayer. Very little time in the community of faith. We sow to the flesh, and then we wonder, why am I reaping so much flesh? Why, why am I not loving people like I desire to love people? Why don't I see the fruit of the Spirit, this love and peace and joy and patience and self-control? Why do I reap so much flesh? Friend, you will reap what you sow. He says if you are going to live out these commandments, you have to sow and sow and sow. Where? To the Spirit. You've got to spend time with him. You've got to rely on his power. You've got to spend the first part of your day with him, giving him your day, asking for his power, asking for his will to be done. You've got to spend time in Christian community. You've got to spend time with the truth coming in. You've got to spend time in prayer. If you are going to reap a harvest of spiritual life, of spiritual fruit, you need to sow into the Spirit. He says, don't be deceived. If you keep sowing to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. You're not going to reap the Spirit. See, at the end of the day, the only way that we're going to be able to love one another is if we have a daily experience of the love that God has for us. It has to be an outflow of the love that he has given to each one of us. 